Well, good morning. I am privileged with the opportunity to be able to deliver the word this morning. And uh, the topic that we're going to be talking about is the topic of relationships. And I really I love J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is a uh, very influential theologian in our time, one of the most influential theologians of the 21st and the end of the 20th century. Um, he's certainly been uh, instrumental in shaping my life spiritually. And I love what he says there. He's, he's, he's getting our hearts and our minds primed for what we're going to talk about this morning. He's, he's introducing this idea of what does it mean to be a part of the church. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at uh, the doctrines related to relationships, but I want that to prime our hearts and our minds as we think about this, because there's no more important relationship that a Christian will ever have than as an active member participating in the body of Christ, right? Because we are the bride of Christ, and we can't do the true Christian life on our own. And so I want that to be something that informs your mind and your heart and gets you ready for what we're going to try and talk about this morning. And the doctrine that I'm going to try to present and defend this morning is it is a kindness to ourselves and our families to make friends with and invest in those who are favored by God. Well, make it at a point to foster covenant relationships rather than consumer relationships. And so covenant relationships, they're, they're kind of fuzzy for us, right? It's, that's not a word that we really use a whole lot these days, but it's a definitely a biblical word. But consumer relationships are something that we are probably more familiar with. Uh, and the idea, though, is that a covenant relationship costs us something. But the beauty is that covenant relationships also give us a deep insight into the love and dedication that God has in pursuing and redeeming his children. And so I want you to have that on your mind as we start to talk through what this looks like. We're going to look at how covenant relationships relate to friendships, how they relate to marriage and family, and also we're going to take a look at the governing relationship. How, what's a proper response to authority? And then we're going to end by um, taking some practical steps to cultivate healthy relationships. And so the narrative that we're going to look at today is the story of Jonathan and David. And Jonathan and David, who are they? So let me do a little bit of backing up and put this into context. You can't just jump in to the scripture without putting some context to it, okay? So here's what's happening. Jonathan and David uh, are meeting in a field, and they're going to discuss some things. Well, what are they discussing? Well, it just so happens that Saul is in one of his crazy fits of rage, and he's been trying to kill David. And David is thinking about, should I stay or should I go? Do, do I really want to show up, or should I really go and flee right now? Well, who's Saul? Saul's the king of Israel. Israel, right? He's the first appointed and anointed king. Who's Jonathan? Jonathan is his son. Well, who's David? Well, we know David. David's been on the incline, right? He's uh, becoming more and more of a leader in Israel, at first as a, as a military leader, and we start to see him taking more and more responsibility as a leader, but he's not the king yet. He's really kind of a nobody still. But there's an interesting relationship that Jonathan and David have. Do you know what that is? They're actually brother-in-laws, which is kind of interesting, isn't it? Well, here's the deal. A couple chapters ago, we're in chapter 20, a couple chapters ago, Saul has this idea that he's going to give one of his daughters to David in marriage. And so first off, David's like, how can I be the son-in-law to the king? Who am I, right? I'm nothing. I'm nobody. Well, it comes to pass that he actually marries one of Saul's daughters. But the interesting thing is, is that even in that marriage, that was meant for David's harm. 
Saul hoped that that would ensnare him. He hoped that it would trip him up. He hoped that he would uh, become captive to the Philistines through this marriage somehow. But what we actually see is that she loves David, and she actually saves David from her own father. But now we see that this relationship um, with Jonathan and David, they're just not just friends, but they're actually family as well. And we'll kind of look at that. Um, so that's kind of the backstory here a little bit. But what they're about ready to do is there's going to be a feast of the new moon. And David was expected to be at this feast. He's expected to eat at the table with Saul. But he's trying to figure out whether or not he should RSVP, right? He doesn't, he's not sure if he wants to show up or not uh, because Saul's been trying to kill him over and over. And so he goes to his good friend and brother-in-law, Jonathan, and uh, he says, Okay, what's the deal with your dad? Give me some insight here. So that's where we're going to pick up this morning is in 1 Samuel chapter 20. So if you'll stand with me. And we'll read the word this morning as we get started. So 1 Samuel chapter 20, and I'm actually going to start in verse 10. It says, Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, Behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then stand and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever." When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan said to David, and he made him swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So this relationship between Jonathan and David is a relationship that is a covenant relationship. It's not based on what either one of them would get out of this relationship, but it was a relationship of self-sacrifice for the good of the other. And covenant relationships, um, they cost us something, don't they? And so we're going to see that um, on pack here. But what another point I want to make and get in your minds as we get going here is that our relationships define us in deep and meaningful ways. And to get them right is the most important things in life, right? To get right the most important things in life. My dad used to tell me the only thing going on in life are relationships. And that's true. There's so much that you can get distracted with, but at the end of the day, the only thing that really, really matters is your relationships. And obviously we could say there's three main relationships, right? The relationship with you yourself, you and your God, and you and your fellow man. And all three of those are very important relationships. But our relationships, they define us in deep and meaningful ways. And to get them right is to get right the most important things in our lives. And I want to ask you a question Have you ever had a really messy relationship? Have you ever had a really painful relationship? Or have you ever been in a relationship and then as soon as you no longer provided that certain relationship something of value that you were rejected? Have you ever had that experience? I know I've been in uh, very negative relationships before and they were very much consumer relationships where I was a user, 
all right? And I think we can all can kind of relate to that if we're honest. Why? Why do we use people? Why do we get in these types of relationships? Because we all have needs, and there's godly ways to meet these needs, but sometimes what we end up doing is we try to meet these needs through ungodly ways, which looks like us actually using each other. Does that make sense? But on a covenant relationship, we're not using each other. We're laying down our rights to serve somebody else. And so on the other hand, I have some very positive relationships that I can look to that are very safe, that they were incredibly encouraging, incredibly um, uplifting and safe. And that's the point is we want to be developing those types of relationships um, because there's a difference between dedication and constraint commitments and covenant consumer relationships. So there's a difference between those. And those are the two ideas that I really want us to struggle through this morning. So I want to present two ideas, and I think they're two ideas that we can see modeled with Jonathan and David. And the first relationship reality is that there are covenant relationships— And covenant relationships are dedicated relationships. And a dedicated relationship is characterized by placing the needs of the partner and the relationship as the higher priority, which means having a willingness to sacrifice for one another. So I want to give you an example of a covenant relationship from the Old Testament. And this is the story of Abram. This was before he was changed his name to Abraham. This is Abram and God. And everyone, I think, is familiar with it, right? Genesis 15. Well, what happens is God is going to make a promise to Abram. And back in those days, they would split an animal in two. And then both parties, whoever was making this, this covenant, making this promise, they would walk through the split beast as if to say, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I become just as this split beast is, right? Thankfully, we don't, we don't make deals like that anymore. And that's kind of a hard concept for us to relate to as modern people. But that's the way it went back then. So I can imagine Abram was probably thinking, okay, I've done this before. I know what this is kind of like. I'm, I'm going to do my best here. Then what do we see? What happens to Abram? God puts him into a deep sleep, doesn't he? So just put yourself in his shoes there. He's getting ready to start this thing. And then God says, no. You go to sleep. And then what we see is that God himself passes through the split animal. And what we actually see there is that God is saying, I alone take the risk of this covenant. I alone take upon myself the risk of failure. Because I am so dedicated to this relationship, I am willing to sacrifice for you. I'm willing to place your need for salvation above my comfort so that our future together is secured. I want you to think about that. Isn't that the gospel? That God has sacrificed for our benefit to not only secure salvation for us as individuals in that moment, but he's also securing our future relationship together. Does that make sense? And that is a beautiful image of what a covenant relationship looks like. And a covenant relationship is not concerned with how the other partner performs, right? And that is exactly what God is saying to Abram by putting him to sleep. He's saying that this covenant is independent of your ability to perform. And that is the gospel, that God is saying, I love you so much. and I'm so dedicated, so committed to this relationship that I'm actually going to remove the opportunity for you to fail. Do you get that? He's literally saying, I alone take on the risk of failure because I am dedicated to you and I'm willing to place your need for salvation above my comfort so that our future together is secured. And this is an interesting thing to think about because what happens is that, that God comes on, uh, comes on the scene as Jesus, right? And what does he do? 
he sacrifices himself for us, but before that, doesn't he suffer with us as human, as human beings? Doesn't the scripture say that? He alone can relate, right? We have a high priest who can sympathize because he has been human. And so every other religion in the world has this idea of what are you going to do for God? What are you going to bring to the table? You need to sacrifice for God. But in the Christian gospel, here it is, that God says, independent of your ability to performance, independent of your ability to bring anything to me or sacrifice for me, I'm going to sacrifice and serve you. I'm going to give up my comfort, make myself nothing to suffer alongside of you and then to suffer for you so that our, our future is secured. And that's what a covenant relationship is about. We bend our wills and our needs for the other. And so this is what we see with David and Jonathan, that their commitment to one another is based in love. And we see scripture says that. It says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. So he is out of a selfless heart committing to David, but he's also asking David to commit to him. And what we see is that, that when Saul and Jonathan die, they die in the same battle, after they're gone, Jonathan actually seeks out the last remaining son of Jonathan. And, and what the scripture says in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, he says, Is there not anyone remaining of the house of Saul that I may show the, God, uh, the kindness of God to him? And he goes on to say that this is for Jonathan's sake. And what he does is he sets up that last remaining son of Jonathan, and he takes care of him. He gives him land. He gives him resources, gives him servants, and makes sure that he keeps his end of this deal, that he is committed to Jonathan even after Jonathan has died. So how does this apply to marriage and family? Well, if we look at it, we can think of, a, of marriage relationships as a covenant relationship, aren't they? And so Timothy Keller points out this fact in his book called The Meaning of Marriage. He says, marriage relationships are unique and are the most deeply covenantal relationship possible between two human beings. Now, just because you're in a marriage relationship, which has the title of a covenant relationship, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually a covenant relationship. Because it, can't it be a consumer relationship? Isn't it completely possible that we actually are in marriages that are consumer relationships? You know, perhaps a person sees the benefits or the legal standing or economic benefit that a marriage can give them. And so then that becomes the actual motivation to unite themselves in marriage to somebody else. Or maybe, maybe an individual has this deep need to be with somebody. They can't be alone. Have you ever known anyone like that? They can't be alone. And so they've got to be with somebody. And what ends up, they get married. And now they're just this huge vacuum, right? Because they're just trying to get their needs met. And that's no longer a model of a consumer, or excuse me, a covenant relationship. That very much becomes a consumer relationship. But what we see in a covenant relationship, in a covenant marriage, we bind ourselves to somebody else and we share everything. We hold nothing back, whether physically or emotionally. And what we do is that we place the needs of another above our own, right? And we're concerned with the health and future of the relationship above our own personal needs and desires in that specific moment. And that's what we've got to look at. We've got to be intentional about seizing the moment in the moment. Because having good intentions isn't enough, right? You've actually got to capitalize on those opportunities when they are presented to you. And I say this to, my, to, our, to our son all the time. He has a hard time listening sometimes. And I say... It, just because you have good intentions to listen at school 
doesn't mean you're actually going to do it, right? What you have to do is develop that practice, develop that discipline in the moment. Every opportunity that you're presented, you got to start there. Same thing for us. In any relationship we're in, if we're going to put the needs of somebody else above our own, you have to actually start somewhere, and that's taking advantage of the moment, seizing the moment, in the moment. But there's another idea I want to present to you, and that's the idea of a dedicated relationship. And a dedicated relationship is one that remains faithful even when the return, the return is not apparent. And one example of this is raising children, isn't it? You, you can have years and years of struggle, years and years of investing without seeing very much return. And even when you do see return, it's usually quite small, isn't it? Last night at our family household, the Lewis family household, it was an interesting evening. Um, I won't get into all of the details. Uh, you know, the sins of my son are between he and I and the Lord and, and my wife. But all I can tell you is that all ended well. We all had ice cream at the end of the night. But there was a moment where it was looking like somebody wasn't going to have ice cream. And believe it or not, to a five-year-old, that's devastating. Um, what we, we had was we had a struggle going on disobedience, 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 and we actually sat down to have ice cream, and this is after three times of, of me like laying down the law and still wasn't working, and I said, we gotta pray over this ice cream. <laughs> right, I know, I know you probably pray over dinner, that's enough, but in that moment, that ice cream needed praying over, right? So I start the prayer, and I, you know, peek, a little dad peek here, and look, and what's he doing? Eating the ice cream during the prayer. Oh no. Right? So we had to, we had to have our, our, our come to Jesus meeting. And I went up there. Um, it was a little bit of an intense moment. But I said, dude, do you know why you're in trouble? And this is trying to break it down to a five-year-old, right? So you kind of you got to stay simple here. But I'm saying, do you know why you're in trouble? No. Only thing he can think about is he's not getting ice cream right now, right? So it's pretty hard to rationalize with him. But where we came to, I said, look. If I don't deal with your disobedience now, it's not going to change. And I said, maybe this was bringing it too hard to a five-year-old, but I said, do you know why adults go to jail and prison? <laughs> no, he doesn't know why. But I said, because they disobey. Isn't that the truth? At some level, that's exactly why we get in trouble, because we disobey. And I said, if I don't do my part as a dad and cut this off right now, you will grow up to be a bad person. I said, you might anyways, because some of it's out of my control, but if I don't make sure that we're battling this now, you will grow up to be a bad person. And so we're trying to struggle through this. I'm like, wait, was that too deep? Let me see. Okay, let's just talk about ice cream again. So I gave him, a, I gave him the, you know, you can have ice cream tonight and not ride your bike tomorrow, or you can forfeit ice cream tonight and then ride your bike tomorrow. He chose ice cream. Can you believe it? So this afternoon, there will be no Gabe cruising the streets of Claremore, just for your information. He chose ice cream. But what's the deal here? We think about these types of relationships, and the more that we look at how much we are indebted to our parents, right? Can we ever pay back our parents for the damages? If you're anything like I was as a kid, no, there's no way. So what do we do? We sentence ourselves to raising kids of our own, which only makes us more aware of how great our debts are and how impossible it is to actually pay them back. Isn't that the truth? That's what happens. But here's the deal. That's a covenant relationship. You would not, ex you would not accept this excuse from someone. If someone says, you know what, I'm leaving my family and my kids because I'm not really getting anything out of it. 
You know, I'm sacrificing all the times for my kids, but what do I get in return? I'm out of here. We would say, no, that's not the appropriate response. We would say, no, suffer. Suffer like the rest of us. Join the club. That's what we would say, wouldn't it? And we can't, we wouldn't say, hey, I've got this dream. I've always wanted to pursue this dream, and my kids and my family are holding me back. You know what? I'm going to leave them and go pursue this dream. We would say that's not right either. We would not accept that. We would say something is wrong, wouldn't we? I know a guy, and I'm not mentioning names, but a guy who wanted to play guitar for a living and was so ate up with it that he ended up leaving his wife and his two little girls to go pursue a, a career in music. I thought, what in the world is going on inside of your head to make you think that? And that is very much an opposite view of a covenant relationship, right? Because a covenant relationship is a dedicated relationship. It is one that remains faithful even when the return is not apparent. So I want to switch gears a little bit here. Let's take a look at consumer relationships and constraint con commitment. So a consumer relationship is very much concerned with return on investment, right? In business, if I can buy low and sell high, that's a good thing, isn't it? Or maybe I have a friend who owns a shop or a store. I may visit my friend and encourage them in their, in their business endeavor, but if their prices are too high, I'm probably not going to buy from them, am I? If I can get the same product down the street for a cheaper price, I'm probably going to go there, even though my friend owns the store. And there's nothing wrong with that, is that? Why? Because in that relationship, that is a consumer relationship. And there's nothing wrong with viewing that in that light right there. But the problem is, is a lot of times we start to look at other relationships um, from the same perspective of, of what am I getting out of it? And as long as the relationship is equitable and as long as we're getting out of it as much or, or more than we put into it, then we'll stay, right? And so there's a saying that relationships are 50-50. But that is an absolutely a consumer perspective. Just saying, I will stay and do half the work if you do half the work. But if you don't pull your weight, I'm out of here. And why would anyone stay in a relationship that's 25-75, where you're doing the majority of the work and someone else is barely carrying their weight? Right? So from a worldly perspective, from a consumer perspective, we would say, I'm out of here, wouldn't we? But truly, a covenant relationship is not focused on having your individual needs met. In a covenant relationship, you sacrifice, you bend to the will of the other, and you put the future of the relationship as a top priority. Does that make sense? That's what a covenant relationship is. And that's how you can love your spouse even when you don't like them. That's how you can look at it and say, you know what, right now I'm really not wanting to hang out with you. Like my wife probably feels this way all the time. I can't about her because she's the sweetest thing ever. But there's times I know when I'm super annoying. But luckily we can look at the benefit of saying I have committed myself not just to you but to the essence of this relationship to the future of this relationship, which helps us put those individual moments into perspective, doesn't it? I hope you're thinking like that. I hope you're living like that because that is absolutely the way we should look at it. Let's move on. Take a look at constraint commitments. Uh, constraint commitment is a type of relationship commitment that actually bases itself on the cost of leaving the relationship. And uh, according to the National Council on Family Relations, uh, constraints are forces that increase the cost of leaving the relationship and they help explain why some people remain in unhappy relationships. You know, examples of constraints are few alternative relationships. You know, maybe there's no one else that'll take me, so here I am in this relationship. Or maybe you have a, con a concern for a dependent, or maybe you have some values about divorce. You know, how many people have we seen who are in abusive, nasty relationships, and they just can't get out? Why? 
because it would cost them too much. And maybe there's a financial reason, social pressure, simply just because terminating the relationship would be too difficult. Think about that. If you have any relationship in your life where you're actually saying, you know what, I know I should get out of this relationship, but it'll cost me too much, so I'm going to stay. If you have those types of thoughts going on in your mind, you are not participating in a covenant relationship. You are participating in a consumer relationship because you're only staying because of what you get out of it. Does that make sense? And that explains why people end up in these crazy, abusive relationships. Uh, In a paper titled Sliding Versus Deciding, Inertia and their premarital cohabitation effect, um, they explore this idea. Now, I, I ask for a little bit of grace, a little bit of mercy here, because I may be offending some people um, coming off as a judgmental Baptist or something, but there's something that I think is important we've got to bring up when we're talking about constraint commitments and covenant relationships, and it is this idea of, of the cohabitation effect. Um, the cohabitation effect is a scientifically established observation that those who cohabit premaritally have a higher risk in marriage. And what the study actually went, to, went on to show is that uh, married couples who had cohabited premaritally had poor observed communication skills, negative interactions, lower levels of interpersonal commitment to their partners, lower relationship quality, and lower levels of confidence in their relationship than those who had not cohabited. Think about that. So you start to maintain these relationships that actually you're struggling to enjoy in the deepest sense and you don't have this confidence, right? Timothy Keller um, notes that this idea of those types of relationships, as cohabiting relationships, uh, or, or, or sex outside of marriage. In one of his sermons called um, Love and Lust, he says that people who are in these types of relationships, what does sex become? Sex becomes marketing. Why? because you're trying to sell yourself as a good choice. And people who are in these long engagements or these uh, cohabitation uh, relationships, what you actually start to see um, is that they feel like they're in a never-ending job interview. Why? Because you're always trying to prove that you're a good choice. And that's the idea, isn't it? Try it before you buy it. Got to kick the tires a little bit. How do I know if this will work out unless I try it? But that absolutely is a consumer way to approach relationships, is it not? You're thinking, I don't want to get in this unless it's good for me. And so what you see is that a lot of times women who are in these types of relationships, they have an enormous pressure to cook well, to keep the house clean, to perform intimately. Otherwise, they're going to risk being rejected and, uh, and in their minds not receive the final approval, which would be commitment in marriage. But what actually happens is when you're in these constraint commitments, you're in these relationships you know you should get out of, but it'll cost too much to get out of them, what you start to do is you start to slide further and further and further into deeper and deeper levels of commitment until you finally wake up one day and you're married to someone you know you aren't even supposed to be with because you didn't pay attention to it early on. Does that make sense? So a point I want you to have in your mind is if you feel like you need to perform or that your friend or partner needs to perform in any way at all in order to keep the relationship alive, you're in a consumer relationship. All right? If you've got to check off milestones on your relationship, right, continuing to uh, go deeper and deeper in this thing just to keep the relationship alive, you are in a consumer relationship. Young people, think about this. If you're getting pressure to keep doing further and further, That is a consumer relationship because someone who actually loves you, someone who actually cares about you is going to say, no, I want what's best for you. 
I'm not going to use you, right? But we've all been in those relationships where we've used someone and, and we've allowed ourselves to be used. But the idea is to refocus those relationships. So a couple of examples of constraint commitments are, you know, maybe you've got a lease together. Maybe you're cohabiting and you know you need to get out of that, but I've got a lease together. What is that going to do? It's going to put pressure on you and make the cost too great to get out of that thing that you're supposed to be getting out of, isn't it? Or some other examples are uh, sexual intimacy, a child out of marriage, or some joint financial commitment. They're all examples of things that add to constraint commitment and can cause people to remain in unhealthy relationships. So I just want I want you to, to be challenged with that this morning. Maybe that's not something you struggle with, but I think we all got to look at this a little bit. What types of relationships are we fostering? Are we fostering covenant relationships or are we fostering consumer relationships? So I want to switch gears a little bit. Let's take a quick look at how to handle authority, the governing relationship. You know, the example of David and Saul is interesting um, because we have to look at the governing relationship with respect. Well, what do we see with David? You know, uh, Saul's kingdom is trending down. David's is trending up. But David never does anything but have the utmost respect for Saul in his anointed position, right? So even though David is justified in returning violence for violence because Saul's tried to kill him many times, he doesn't do that. Now me, personally, if you try to kill me, I'm probably going to try to kill you back, right? Maybe that's just because I'm from the south. But what we see here, David... As this guy tries to kill him over and over, what does he do? He's like, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Isn't that interesting? And he has the utmost respect for his position. And we know that David truly cares about this. Um, and, but what's really interesting is that, that he, for one, yeah, he never attacks Saul physically. But even more surprising is the fact that David never slanders Saul in his speech either. He questions Saul and his attempts on his life, but he never slanders Saul. Never in the scriptures do you see David talking trash about Saul. Think about that. It's another point that he has respect for him and his position, even though he disagrees with his behavior, right? And so this is something, this ought to be a lesson to us in how we approach our own appointed leadership. Even though the oftentimes they are found wanting in so many different ways, we are to have respect and guard our speech, which is very difficult, right? Especially when they're giving us so many opportunities right now, right? I don't know if you struggle with that. I struggle with that. I've got a sharp mouth and I can talk a lot of trash. Um, and so this is a lesson for me too when I'm looking at David and I think how incredible is he not only attacking Saul, uh, keeping from attacking Saul, but he doesn't even verbally attack him. But number two, how do we deal with authority, the governing relationship, and submission? What's interesting is in chapter 16, David is anointed by Samuel as king of Israel, yet in chapter 20 we see David on the run, don't we? And right here in this own uh, picture, He's doing nothing uh, to, to, to run off Saul. And this is a, a wonderful example of a godly man submitting to ungodly leadership. And, and, and what we see is that Saul is trying to do all these crazy things, but David is submitted to him. And we see that David feels very strongly about this because in 2 Samuel chapter 1, a messenger comes back from the battlefield and he says, uh, hey, Saul's dead. And, and they're asking him, well, what happened? He goes, well, I helped kill him. What does David do to that messenger? He has him executed, doesn't he? And he literally says to him, he says, How is it that you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? 
So not only are we to respect authority, we're to submit to it even when we disagree. Uh, you know, there's, there's lots of other examples we can struggle with. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, not going to comment on the correctness of his actions, but there was definitely some struggle there whether or not to submit to that evil leadership, right? But one beautiful example uh, is Daniel. He's a prime example of godly disobedience to authority. So I don't want you just to think, oh, no matter what, we've got to blindly follow authority, because if nothing else, take a look at Daniel and what happened with his case. He saw it fit to disobey, didn't he? But we've got to be um, wise in this. Number three, with sober judgment, okay? With the idea of, of submission, we also see that David is sober in his judgment in dealing with Saul. David is no fool. He doesn't put fate to the test, but he runs away, doesn't he? He doesn't just stand around and be like, well, if it's God's will that I live, then I'll just go, I'll show up to dinner tonight and see what happens. He doesn't do that. What he's actually doing is he, he, he prepares to leave, and he goes and he meets up with Jonathan, right? He, he consults his friend. He seeks intelligence and makes a plan to escape the harm that was to come his way. And so that's the same thing for us. We see Jesus, too, many times escaping the mob who intended to kill him. He's like, no, I don't have to be under this. So, too, if someone in leadership means to do us or our family harm, we don't necessarily have to stand up to that assault, okay? We can flee in certain examples. And I don't have time to unpack that. I wish I did. But David, right here, is, is, is making sure that everything is in place so that he can stay alive, which is not a bad thing. Now let's package all this. Let's, let's start to, to, to conclude here. What is the third point? What are practical steps for developing healthy relationships? First off, you have to cultivate it, right? Now friendships um, require intentional effort. Um, and, and I love what Matthew Henry says. He says, It'll, it, it will be a kindness to ourselves and to ours to secure an interest in those whom God favors and to make his friends ours. So I want to encourage you to cultivate godly relationships. Surround yourself with godly people who can encourage you, who can inspire you, who can hold you accountable. And I love the analogy that C.S. Lewis gives. He, he gives the idea of ships sailing in formation, right? And well, they're heading to a destination, but in route, they shouldn't be crashing into one another, should they? That would be a bad thing for the fleet. But, you know, so many people in our modern society say, well, as long as you aren't hurting anyone else, it doesn't matter what you do. You can do whatever you want to do. There's a fallacy in that, and I love C.S. Lewis. He points it out right here. He says, so just as ships sailing in formation shouldn't crash into one another, but if the individual ships aren't kept up, if they're not maintained, if the captain doesn't care about the condition of his ship— then before long it will become a faulty ship, right? For example, its steering gears become faulty, its steering rudder, now it can't be guided correctly. It has no choice but to crash into things and go off course, right? Causing others harm. And C.S. Lewis says this, he says, what is the good of drawing up on paper rules for social behavior if we know that in fact our greed, cowardice, ill temper, and self-conceit are going to prevent us from keeping them? You cannot make men good by law, and without good men, you cannot have a good society. Right? So it matters on a personal level because you are going to interact with somebody else eventually. And if you're not in good spiritual condition, that's going to be bad. Right? So two, in cultivating healthy relationships, we are to mind our own spiritual health foremost. And we are to have um, this in our minds because if we're not in good spiritual condition— then we have no choice but to become consumers and then we have nothing to offer anyone else. Have you ever seen two people get together and they both are just needy, 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 needy? Have you ever seen, what happens? It's like two vacuums coming together, right? Neither one of them really has anything to give the relationship. 
So first and foremost, we've got to pay attention to our own condition before we become consumers and so that we may have something to offer someone else. And last, we have to commit to it. What we see is Saul not committing to his relationships. Not only is he willing to sacrifice anything and anybody, he's willing to do just about anything in order to kill David. And so we see at this dinner feast, if you read a couple uh, chapters further, uh, or actually verses further, you start to see what actually happens. And at that feast, he says, where's the son of Jesse? But isn't David his son-in-law? And besides that, doesn't he have a name? But we see Saul distancing himself from David. He says, where's the son of Jesse? As if he has nothing to do with him. And then he also says, excuse my French, but this is from the word. He, sa- he calls his own son Jonathan, the son of a whore, and then he tries to kill him in front of everybody at the, at the party. Pretty rough example of a father, isn't it? He was not committed to his relationships past what they could get him. And so we've got to think about this. We've got to commit to our relationships, um, even when they're difficult and even when they provide us little in return. And this is an act of love upon which covenant relationships um, are built. So in closing this morning, I want to remind you that we would do well to make God's friends our friends. And I want to read to you a quote from Jonathan Edwards. He says, God punishes his son who is infinitely dear to him and loving to us so that the gospel might have the greatest possible tendency to reach the most tender parts of our hearts. How great a cause for us to be humbled to the dust because we are not more affected. So I want to take a couple minutes this morning and I want you to reflect with me. Possibly you are viewing God this way. Maybe, maybe you're looking at God and you're saying, you know what, Lord, if you come through for me, if you respond in the ways that I want you to respond, if you answer my prayers, then I'm here. I'm all yours. But if you don't, I'm out. How many times have we seen or said it ourselves, God, if you get me through this, if you get me out of this situation, I will serve you with everything I have. Have you ever done that? Man, there's some good people in here. I'm the only one. <laughs> have you ever done that? When you think like that, what you're doing is you're saying, God, there's conditions to our relationship. What are the conditions? They're consumer conditions. If you do for me, Lord, then I'll do for you. And we've got to refocus that. We've got to look at how we're relating to the Lord. Because the gospel is this, that God cares so much about us. He loves us so deeply. He's so dedicated that he's doing everything, shaping history to redeem his children, independent of our performance. So stand with me this morning. I want to I wanna start our time of invitation. If you have consumer relationships that you can identify, I ask you to be bold, be strong, not just in recognizing them, but making steps to get them corrected because they will absolutely hold you back. And if you're looking at church membership the same way, that you're saying, you know what? What do I get out of going to church? What do I get out of this? I encourage you to start to, to, to ask God to change your heart. Father, we thank you so much for everything you've done for us, that you are a dedicated covenant partner, that you see it through.